Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about where I would be without God. I actually want to start us off today with a fairly old-fashioned approach and quoting the lyrics, or at least part of the lyrics, to a hymn by Dottie Rambo. The things that I love and hold dear to my heart are just borrowed. They're not mine at all. Jesus only let me use them to brighten my life, and so remind me, remind me, dear Lord. Roll back the curtain of memory now and then. Show me where you've brought me from and where I could have been. And remember... I'm human, and humans forget, so remind me, remind me, dear Lord. This actually isn't going to be an old-fashioned episode. I'm going to hit some things which, compared to that song, are, are fairly recent. Last week, I introduced the topic of this question that was posed to me a few years ago about where would I be without God. It was actually not posed to me directly, as if in an email or a private message, but it was put on a thread in an online forum well, I think it was widely known that I was going to be an active participant. So I did choose to answer the question as though it was posed to me directly and personally. And that required a couple of different approaches because the answer to the question that I you know, firmly and sincerely believe in my heart is the truth is the one I'm going to share today. But unfortunately, that's not a particularly scientific answer. And I put the word scientific there in quotation marks. I needed to deal with some of the raw philosophy behind the questions of the existence of God and the thought experiments that have been done throughout the centuries by you know, thinkers who've done a much better job of, of looking at this issue than I have philosophically. And that's in the previous inappropriate conversation, number 117. The two in some way have a relationship with each other. The other thing that I realized is if I was going to actually do the archivist thing and pull information that was previously put online in a forum that's no longer actively and readily available, I will once again quote things I've shared already in www.simplysyndicated.com and those forums. The thing that stopped me from doing this much earlier, because obviously this is a very important topic for me, it's central to what inappropriate conversations is really all about, but I didn't want to repeat myself. I know there's a core group of listeners who um, have heard, or maybe more specifically, read some of this before, but it's also been quite some time. And again, it's not the current version of the forum. These posts are not just sitting out there in an active queue, so to speak. So maybe it is okay if I, I throw people a blast from their past and not just a blast from my own past. But the other thing is that it really is still the best way for me to answer this question. But there's something I must do first. In Inappropriate Conversations 90, called Moments of Epiphany, I shared some of this story, and some of the story that probably is good background for the rest of what I'm going to do, and I feel like I need to kind of swirl around this a little bit. There may be a handful of stories in the entire run of inappropriate conversations that I've revisited from time to time, and I think it's probably obvious that if I were to tell any one of them cover to cover, be comprehensive about it, it would be more than a two-hour show. It's not just that I don't do it in that linear fashion to avoid the problem of having shows that run longer than I want them to. It's also because I think these stories really are best told from different angles. Now, if you think about the Akira Kurosawa film Rashomon, sometimes it's good to look at a story from different perspectives, even if those perspectives clash with each other to a certain extent or overlap in ways that you know, may not be ideal. So, in the interest of providing some supporting material behind Inappropriate Conversations 90, and if someone just didn't want to listen to that, that's fine, I'm going to go back to a letter to myself. I have a show where I introduced a couple of these letters just a, a couple of months ago, as a matter of fact, and I'm going to revisit that again for what I think is probably the last time. Some of the other letters, well, never got written in that writing project from, I think, 2006, and some of those letters are just too personal to cover. And this may be one of them. I've, I've scanned through. I realize there are some places where I'm going to have to leave names out or change names to protect the innocent. But I'm going to take a shot at it because it's another way of looking at the background material 
that will help understand the answer that I ultimately did give to the question, where would I be without God? Has God intervened in my life? And how do I know that? And how has it changed everything? But first, a letter to myself, to someone named Janet. Now, this is not the Janet that I've mentioned in correspondence on inappropriate conversations. This is somebody that I've quite literally still lost touch with. I haven't seen her since college. And we weren't, you know, the closest of friends. We weren't um, see each other every day, go out to lunch, go out to dinner type friends in high school. But I think the letter will explain this better than I could. So let me just begin right off the bat with Dear Janet. I love you. Don't read too much into that statement. I probably could begin almost every letter I intend to write over the next few weeks with that same statement. I mean it, of course. Typical me, though. I don't mean it exactly in the way the world always seems to expect. In my memory, I've written at least one letter to you that should have been delivered and wasn't. Granted, that's nothing new. Our sophomore year in high school, I wrote one of those letters and did deliver it and then attempted to clarify or even apologize for writing, to which you responded in a way that changed my entire belief system, and I guess my life. I'm referring to college, though. I don't believe I delivered a letter to you at your apartment. I may have not even written it yet. I'm pretty sure you haven't heard everything that I've thought. It's more than thought. It's prayed. In some ways, part of me is confident that both of us should be relieved. On the other hand, at times like these, I wrestle with regrets. It seems wrong to feel such a powerful connection with someone and have it to be so unspoken. It's not simply a matter of never telling you just how much you have saved me, more than once, at critical times in those maturing years of high school and early college. More, it's a sense I've always had that you somehow needed to know this, that it would provide some validation or strength to you, an anchor in tough times. How do I manage this conflict within me? Clumsily. That's the word I typically use for it. I pray, and I hope that's enough. But if I saw you tomorrow morning, after the shock and delight of meeting you once again, I still do not know how much I would share. I never really knew how much my friend Janet wanted to hear, so it's obvious that I'd be even less confident today. Since this is essentially a letter to myself rather than you, though, I'll give it a shot. When I first saw you, first saw you, it was in the first week of the eighth grade. When I last saw you, it was five months before the official end of our senior year in college. For me, the first of two senior years in college. For you, ending there quite abruptly because you graduated early. Janet, you didn't look any different. You were already fully physically mature in junior high school. And I know it made you a target. I noticed, and I know that the other boys did the same. In 10th grade, a couple years later, we both learned how some unscrupulous female classmates reacted, what dangerous depths jealousy would lead them to. I'll grant that I may be wrong, but you certainly didn't seem to get taller or bigger as you got older. The other thing about your appearance is that you look normal, if that means anything. I know, I mean, how normal could your appearance be if everything else I've said here is true? Well, you didn't look like a Playboy centerfold, or even one in the making. And you didn't look like a future model, super or otherwise. But in your own way, you still looked extraordinary. I don't know why, but I don't believe our relationship, friendship, acquaintanceship, what our relationship, had much to do with your appearance. And it goes without saying, certainly not mine. Forgive me, but I was a 13-year-old boy back then. It is possible I lost some sleep over you. That fact probably merits neither apology nor explanation. It didn't help that I once got a complete down-the-dress view, down-the-strapless-dress view, when Jimmy buried your civics test at the bottom of the pile in eighth grade, and you were too concerned about your answers to wait for the teacher to reveal the grades. I was there. I saw. And I can testify that everything I have said is true. At that moment, on that early spring morning, I found myself dealing with too much information in a good way. So I had a pretty good understanding of how lucky you were, but somehow I knew not to trust that assumption. We probably should call it a God-given insight because I was not that insightful, period. <laughs> Beautiful girl, well-to-do family, plenty of friends, good church, etc. 
add to that list dating a senior when only a sophomore in high school. I'm not judging that, at least not in principle. You could understand any parent being concerned, but you were very mature for your age. What no one factored in was the jealous response of this guy's ex-girlfriend. She was a junior who apparently took great pride in dating a senior and perceived great insult in losing him to a sophomore. You know all of this, so you don't need me to tell you. Here's the part you don't know. Frankly, I probably shouldn't claim that I know it either if the word knowledge includes any presumption of understanding because I don't fully understand. Not even 25 years later. And of course, that's 25 years later in 2006. (laughs) Wow. 25 years gone by. I haven't seen my friend Janet in 20 years, except in my mind, where you always look the same, and who knows, you may still look the same now. I digress. But here's the mystery. Why did I stand up for you? Please do not read that question as an indication that you were in any way unworthy. Far from it. But worthy or not, where did that decision come from? Let's lay out the pros and the cons, just to tell the whole truth. Janet, you and I did not run in the same circles. I didn't share any common acquaintances with you and had no expectation of protection, social or otherwise, from you or your friends. There was nothing in it for me. We would never be in a dating relationship. I'd assumed I wasn't your type, and believe it or not, you weren't mine either. I mean, don't get me wrong. Fantastic breasts seemed to speak for themselves that day in civics class, but I preferred women more curvy, more substantial less fragile, and far less conscious of social circles. Country club is an inaccurate term for it, but one that may suffice in a jam. I'm not country club material, so I wasn't going to get anything out of befriending you that way. I'll grant just one thing. You are a very pleasant person, and if you end up spending several hours talking with someone, well, pleasant is good. But that's about it for the pro list. What about the cons? It's huge. It's a huge list. So understand that I'm intentionally being brief. I could go on and on and on, but I'll just grab a few highlights. The easy answer is, you could have rejected my offer to help. Worse, you could have been offended, and I may have had to deal with your angry friends. The person who was spreading these rumors was the older sister of one of my better friends. Taking a position that called her a liar was not a good move for that friendship. Not only that, I had no way of knowing how you would react when we learned that the culprit in all this nonsense came from my circle, the band, not yours, and my friend's sister, no less. I never really understood why the band occasionally triggered hostility from people, but in this case, a little hostility may have been justified. Those are some big cons. I'm not sure there is much middle ground either. We should never allow me to make too much of the potential date-rape angle, because that term wasn't even a buzzword back then. Now, words are just words, and the lack of a catchy phrase doesn't mean that the dangers weren't there. I learned directly from you, Janet, when you shared your confusion at how angry some of your dates seemed to be at the end of the night. You didn't realize that they were expecting to score with an easy lay from a popular clique who was fair game, because she wasn't a virgin, because of what she'd been doing with that senior. The combination of these rumors and your social standing meant that you were asked on plenty of dates, and it was really something of a miracle that the worst things didn't happen. We found our way through that crisis. My friend and I had to remain cordial and co-lead the drum section. That went, that went a lot better than it could. Actually, we remained friends through it all somehow. Now, your social standing was more likely than not a burden that I could never understand. But your social standing surely helped you, too. People gave you a lot more slack than they would have given a girl from the swim team or the band, for example. Any guy saying that he got some off of Janet was probably suspected to be lying. For some who heard these lies, the stories were too good to be true. Again, like I worded it earlier, it would be too much information to enjoy vicariously or to not enjoy vicariously. Since those who told those stories were liars, it made the skepticism somewhat automatic. The pattern I noticed pretty much divided along gender lines. Women wanted to believe it, but those with any empathy probably hoped it wasn't true, knowing that they wouldn't want such a target to be on them. Men wanted to disbelieve it, because of a sense that they wanted it to be them, and not the other guy, or, sadly in the case of these rumors, the other guys. 
None of this answers the bigger question I'm asking, though. Why did I say anything? Why take a chance on being ostracized from both the band and from journalism, my small and diverse group, but also from every other clique that I tried to move in and through so freely? I don't know. My reaction seemed natural. Years later, I would pray for guidance in somewhat similar situations, but this time I just acted. Right and wrong played a factor. I was taking a moral stance with a vague understanding of the risks and a clear understanding of right and wrong. In an effort to take this letter full circle and to make sense of some statements that Janet somehow saved me or changed my beliefs, I think it comes from an awesome and underestimated power of friendship. Janet, I know I have very accurately called you an acquaintance in this letter and even in those past years. But I also believe that you are the first friend I've truly loved. To call you my first real friend would be misleading because of all that acquaintance talk, living in different circles, having different expectations. Here's what I mean by friend. Both of us, or maybe speaking only for myself, I had collateral at stake. I don't know about you, but I sure felt like I had options. On the negative side, I could have avoided a whole lot of pain and used my time in other ways. On the positive side, I would have walked away with nothing less than strong sexual fantasies, sexual feelings that changed on me, faded a bit, you might say, because I let you get too close. There are other examples I could use, almost all of which are characteristics of intersexual friendship, because there are other relationship options between men and women than there are with the guys, so to speak. I know that I truly loved you, Janet, because of that collateral. What happened between us? Well, for me anyway, I could describe, I could describe it this way. I took the resources that were at stake in our evolving relationship and I gave them up. I didn't give them to you. We didn't have that kind of relationship. No, I gave them up for you. In retrospect, I might be tempted to say that I gave them to God. It doesn't really matter. I wasn't focusing on the loss. I was attuned to the gains, your safety and relative happiness, my permission to enter into this sacred friendship with you, and the opportunity we both had to stop others from being pawns in acts of evil. I do not remember how much of this I've ever told you. Maybe precious little. Who knows, though? Maybe you knew a great deal of this through the mirroring properties of true friendship. I won't speculate further. I will try to answer the question I raised in this letter, though. How did you save me? I cannot answer that question without referring to something I call the Janet Rules. Surely, even the existence of Janet Rules supports the argument that you've somehow saved me, right? In 10th grade, all this you know, stuff with you know, my friend's sister was going on. Before that, I would have been afraid to approach you, truth be known, in part out of a little guilt about any role I might have played in getting a tricky look down your top in the 8th grade, and to be honest, out of a sense that I had no shot to get another look with permission. And I was better off holding you at an arm's distance so the real Janet wouldn't interfere with the fantastic memory. None of these facts mattered when the rumors started. We had conversations. Many days in journalism class and more than just a couple of times on the phone in the evening. Janet rule number one came from those phone calls. Do not consume alcohol when depressed or angry. This vow involved not using alcohol as a crutch. We'd witnessed our parents doing that, and we didn't like it. At the same time, we were feeling the temptation ourselves. You were depressed. I was angry. Both of us were essentially helpless to do anything about the situation. Now, I do drink alcohol. I don't pretend to be a saint. I'm, I'm a real person. But I followed Janet rule number one, with probably less than a handful of exceptions in 25 years. Drinking is an act of celebration. Jesus said that he would not drink wine with us again until the day of the celebration feast in heaven at the end of the age. I don't drink when I'm angry or depressed. I only drink in celebration and in moderation. Janet, where do you think I'd be without that rule? One possibility is Alcoholics Anonymous. That is where most people who habitually drink while angry or depressed find their happy ending. I say happy because the other optional endings are much more disturbing. What about Janet rule number two? Well, there are a couple of things that must be understood in order to grasp this rule. First, I viewed our relationship as a friendship, with a capital F, and I would later describe it as a sacred friendship. 
It has become quite the rage these days for couples to talk about their friendship, their friendship first, particularly before they were dating. Well, that's not what I mean by sacred friendship. My relationship with you was my first of less than a handful so far in this life that had this quality. Carl Jung described it as ion, the phenomenology of the self. I call it mirroring. We stepped into territory that was somehow non-sexual, beyond sexual. And just look at you, or what this letter honestly says about you, to marvel at the significance of that statement, non-sexual. Those rumors spread through our high school like a plague for reasons that have everything to do with your sexual attractiveness. Ironically, I know you don't want to hear this, and I know it because of rule number two. Guys thought you were smoking hot, and part of them wanted to believe the rumors were true, and that they might take part. Girls knew what the guys thought, and wanted to believe the rumors in order to claim that you were popular by reputation, rather than by your appearance or personality, or something like that. I won't pretend to explain what high school girls think. Just grant me this much, and you will know that this is a shocking thing to say, that my feelings for you were so spiritual, for want of a better word, that they really stopped being sexual. I spoke so freely, in a manner not unlike this, in a letter that I wrote to you on yearbook day at the end of our sophomore year. I felt terrible that morning, unable to find the right words. My signature on your yearbook may have been little more than, have a nice summer, I hope to see you in classes next year. What a nightmare when I read your heartfelt and genuinely caring signature in my book. So I wrote what I truly felt in a letter. Not this long, to be sure, but at least front and back, if not multiple sheets of paper. The words just flowed out of me. I was taken by a confidence that I could tell you anything, and trust that the strange bond we had would survive whatever came our way, even truth, which I don't think we should ever take too lightly. Do you remember? No sooner had I given you the letter, middle of the day, and I started having doubts. What if she misinterprets? Could you handle a rejection like that on the same day that she wrote all those confirming and validating words? What if she misunderstands and wants to change the relationship into something different? You can't date Janet, my mind told me, around the time my mind caught up with me and figured out that it was a waste of imagination to even ponder that possibility. So I found you after school and tried to make sure that you understood my intentions. That's what was going on in my mind that day, at that time, at that moment. Janet, I didn't want to risk losing the sacredness of our friendship. Your reply to me became Janet rule number two. I don't remember your exact words, only your message. Do not espouse sexual feelings, or for that matter, take the trouble to deny them toward a true intersexual friend. Don't compromise the sacredness, the mirroring of that type of friendship. Don't make it less than friends by attempting to transform something genuinely beautiful into a false notion that our culture describes as more than friends. Janet, I thank you with all my heart for rule number two. And I will grant that you probably didn't know you were giving me a lifelong guideline but the truth is, you were probably finding a big way of telling me that you understood without being rude or implying that you didn't want to hear it from me. What difference did this rule make? Well, every time I have ever been blessed to befriend another person in this way, you have been a crucial example. The right way, so to speak. Every time I have failed to communicate properly and let a friend or a potential friend down as a result, the reason is my inability to live up to this rule. My relationship with my wife has been so good and so blessed, in part because of this rule. You see, when you keep friendship sacred, it is that much easier to see your marriage partner when you find her. I found Cheryl early. We were dating at the end of my junior year in high school, and we stayed true to each other for our entire sexual lifetimes. If I didn't love you, Janet, then how could I possibly write something like that to you? I had been with this one woman in this life. I believe that God has given me the blessing that is Cheryl. I also believe that friends like you, among others, helped me embrace this with very little baggage. Keeping friendships, true friendships, sacred, helped stop me from making mistakes that I would have regretted with people I needed to approach with agape or brother and sisterly love. It also spared both me and my wife the embarrassment that so many people have to work through about their past sexual encounters. I didn't have any. With the exception of a couple of, you know, strip clubs, few I'd say compared to most men. I've never been in the presence of a completely naked woman who wanted me to see her completely naked. Janet rule number two has much to do with why. 
and also with why I have no regrets whatsoever. Are you ready for a shock? It's written between the lines, so I'm going to go ahead and say it. If you leave out mothers and sisters, living in a house together, there are moments you simply cannot avoid. Then there is only one woman in the world I know personally, aside from my wife, who has shown me her breasts. I feel like I need to put intentionally or otherwise here to make the sentence accurate. But Janet, you are that woman. Yes, it was unintentional. Frankly, I've always felt a little bad about it, or to be honest, about how much I enjoyed it. It's amazing at the irony, though. In one sense, you are as close as my wife has ever been to dealing with another woman from Greg's past, yet that is so many miles away from the truth of our relationship that it doesn't even apply. And the main reason that the only example is as innocent as this one is because of your rules. Both of them, really. Rule number two applies directly, but we all know the kind of things that happen when drinking guidelines like Janet Rule number one are violated. Forgive me if any of this makes you uncomfortable. It is a huge presumption on my part to decide that a letter like this is even remotely appropriate. We are not as close as we once were, and I was never that confident in sharing too much like this anyway, even then. Let me clarify just a couple of points on the chance that I have offended you in any way. First, I never viewed any encounter of ours as sexual, immature pranks notwithstanding. I never touched you in any way. So the gist of this story is that, as I've told you, there is no one, including you, who has been with me like Cheryl has. That's a blessing, and it is one that you helped in a very positive and supportive way. Second, every time God has placed a female friend in my path, I have had to decide whether to act and how, without exception. One of the ways I make that decision is by asking how a new situation compares to my relationship with you. Knowing what we were like as friends has made all the difference in the world. There, I've said it. If it wasn't clearly stated along the way, I hope you know that I miss you. Never forget that Janet made a big difference in this world. There are people who love her deeply. Some of them have never met her and never will. Some of them regret that they may never see her again. In this case, though, time changes nothing. God's love is eternal. Some liturgies for the Lord's Supper include a reading, Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. Amen. That's a statement of God's eternal love for us. I've also said it this way, both as a prayer and as a creed. I have loved, I do love, and I will love. Thank you for being there when I was learning how. With love and friendship, Greg. Hi there, this is Rick Moyer, the host of the Take Him With You weekly podcast. My wife Amy and I talk every week about all sorts of cool geeky things going on around our house. Plus, we have some uh, positive words of encouragement and then a subject every week that is sure to uh, make you think a little bit and hopefully encourage you for the week to come. That's our goal. Visit us at TakeHimWithYou.com. You can also find us on iTunes. Just search for Take Him With You. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. Thanks. Part of me hopes the emotions that I still powerfully feel after all these years come through in that letter, and part of me ironically kind of doesn't. It's, uh, it's still that real for me. And the funny thing is that that entire part of the show was just me telling a story so that you could make sense of the other story. Kind of like a, a thing I've heard Bill Cosby say more than once in his comedy routines. I told you that story, but only so I could tell you this one. So I guess I should get to the point and answer the question that was posed to me online many years ago. Where would I be without God? Well, to me, the question is a bit like looking at the last act of It's a Wonderful Life. I'd have to know some things that I don't know about my path. I say that because I believe that God has worked in my life. Without those moments, things would be very different. I can't do this without making some very specific references and telling stories that will make this long. So I apologize in advance. Ironically, when I posted this in a forum, I had to cut it up into five pieces. The reality is, it's not just that I didn't have a blog back then. I didn't have a podcast back then. I wasn't using my podcast website as a you know, a dual purpose blog, I didn't really have the idea of doing a podcast at the time. And it wasn't in my mind named inappropriate conversations yet. It goes back that far. Here's how I answered the question though. And you'll see immediately how it ties into the introductory material. I believe Janet 
is a big reason why I'm not recovering from some sort of dependency. Two generations up and beyond in my family, what we call alcoholism today is not that hard to find. Janet and I made sort of a pact not to follow that trend. I've been blessed by what I call the Janet rules since my sophomore year in high school, the equivalent of the fourth form in England. One, do not drink when angry or depressed. Alcohol equals celebration, not medication. Two, do not presume that every loving relationship with the opposite gender is sexual. So did Janet intervene on my behalf or I on hers? And what does God have to do with it? Well, I didn't notice the Holy Spirit's role at the time. Individually, both of us believed we were intervening on each other's behalf. She assumed I had a drug problem because I wore a Black Sabbath t-shirt to school every other day and many of my friends had used drugs. I had heard clearly false rumors about her, sexual in nature, that seemed to be making her perceived as some sort of an easy target. I hesitated to say anything. I don't think I would have said anything as a non-believer. I didn't need the hassle. She was out of my league. There was nothing in it for me, even if the locker room headlines were true. Some of the people spreading the gossip were friends of mine and acquaintances of mine, and I still believe that a 15-year-old needs all the friends they can get. Why risk it? Plus, she seemed to be raised with a caste system in her mind. Even if she decided that I was a good person, I wasn't initially keen on how she seemed to be judging a whole set of my friends. By university, I had enough perspective to realize that God seemed to be at work in both sides of this relationship. He was breaking down her caste system and giving me the strength to stand up to my friends. We stopped those rumors, as much as anyone can in that environment. I learned some things about dating from a young woman's perspective that would help me be less stupid with Cheryl, whom I'd meet a year later and begin our ongoing three-decade journey. Janet and I gave each other permission to speak freely. She needed to know why that football player invited her to a party at a friend's house, and why the house was empty when they got there, and why he was incredibly angry when she insisted they leave if the party was canceled. I needed to know that it wasn't wrong. No doubt gay would have been a slur for it back then to spend that much time with a very attractive woman and keep it platonic. Once I got enough perspective to put those pieces together, I began thanking God often for Janet. I still do it now. Today? Well, yes, because I'm thinking about her. But not every day. Five years later, in college, I was gripped by an irrational fear. It started off with missing my last chance to say goodbye to Janet. I ignored that. We went to the same university, and our senior years weren't over. But it persisted, even growing to the point of having dreams that later in life she might find herself in despair and never fully know how much those few months of relying on each other meant. When things got better in high school, she moved in her clique and I moved in all of mine. Nothing called for closure. Now, though, I needed that closure. I felt like Ananias must have in Acts chapter 9, verses 10 through 12. I didn't hear a voice. But I felt like I was being sent. In his case, he was being sent to Saul, who was persecuting the church and was going to eyewitness the conversion of that man from Saul to the Apostle Paul. But I still felt like I was being sent. I knew which apartment complex Janet lived in. I'd never been there, and it only came up in passing once when I asked her if she still lived in the sorority house. There were a good hundred apartments in the two-story complex by the sports stadiums. I asked myself, or what I considered at the time to be asking myself, the question, pretty sarcastically, about whether I was just going to knock on every door until Janet answered. And what was I going to say then? There are many reasons why I don't tell this story unless I feel genuinely led. The biggest is that I know it sounds like a lie. The second biggest is that it belongs to me and Janet. And the third is that I believe the two of us weren't alone there. It is ours in that respect. Mine and hers and God's. So I've come to believe that it's not important if others take me at my word. I went to the side of the building that was closest to the basketball field house. I don't know why. Then I walked up to a door that I presumed was going to be my first try. My uncertainty was well-founded. Not only was there a factor of more than 100 apartments, or the possibility that in the past couple of months she moved again. This kind of thing happens all the time in university life. Further, would I know that I'd knocked on the wrong door if no one answered? Or could it be the right door with no one home in the middle of the afternoon? I knocked on that first door, and Janet answered. Of course, she must have had a stalker alert moment. I would have. I hadn't called and certainly didn't know her apartment number. 
She may not have recalled telling me what little she did. She relaxed quickly and asked me why I came by. I can't explain how she remained so at ease when I told her that I didn't really know that something just told me I needed to make sure she knew how important she was to me. I apologized, of course, for coming off so strange. I just told her that I had this powerful sense that any chance I had to say goodbye was fading on me. And so I wanted to put an emphasis on the connection we had formed years earlier. Any tension Janet may have felt left completely. I may be wrong about this. I cannot speak for her. But she may have sensed a higher power at work, or at least a cosmic coincidence, that earned her respect. She was leaving university at the end of that semester. And since she was taking her finals early, it was just going to be a matter of days. The reasons are trivial. Internship requiring her to spend a year in the field, along with being on course for early graduation. Clearly, she had taken a different path at university to my five-year plan. I'm not particularly interested in whether it's possible to prove that God inspired both the hello and the goodbye side of my friendship with Janet. I believe it. Did I pray for guidance and direction? Not overtly, although more at the university end of the story. But I can't see how behaving instinctively explains this change in direction. With other things that I've experienced, though, I can trace a path backward. Ways I have felt or seen and heard God working much more directly in my life have kept me on a line that I can trace straight to the beginning. For that reason, it is easy for me to credit the Holy Spirit with that first turn, with that friendship with Janet. In Janet's case, I believe that I was intervening in her life. It was only later that I recognized that God's actions are a much better why explanation than anything you could find at the time for my courage or my character. It was only after university that I recognized that God was likely working in her life as well. She must have found my anti-establishment attitude, my pseudo-afro, my rock and roll clothing to be every bit as intimidating as I perceived her country club credentials. She also had more to lose socially. At the end of the day, I was talking to a hottie. She was working up the courage to tell me to stop using drugs, and she was not at all prepared to hear me say that I wasn't using drugs at all. Never had. The reason now I think that Janet was trying to act on my behalf as much as I was trying to do so for her is something that Marcy did a couple of years later, my senior year, the UK equivalent of sixth form. I was pretty depressed, and I didn't realize it. That happens. I was happy dating Cheryl after we'd met during the year in between, but I'd also been struck with a sense that I needed to get in the way of a clique in high school that had no room or patience for me. I needed to tell a young woman, not Marcy and not Janet, that she didn't need to be a party-goer to be popular. Oh, and all this without any first-hand eyewitness knowledge on my part. I'd heard some things, initially disbelieved them, decided to entertain them, and later came to believe that there was something to the rumors. Getting involved was all risk and no reward. The risks were even higher because my girlfriend did not understand my depression and felt threatened by my lack of apathy. Why did I care? That's all I'm going to say about the person I felt called to meet and speak to. It's enough to say that I have no doubt in my mind that God was involved. I prayed about it, ignored the answer, and perhaps felt depressed as a result. I went from feeling that my prayers were being answered, even if I didn't like those answers, to feeling like my prayers were on hold. Marcy and I did not know each other that well, considering that we'd had at least one class together all three years of high school. Two years earlier, she was in the one class I shared with Janet. Marcy probably observed my friendship with Janet, and maybe that gave her some assurance that I'd be open to hearing some challenging words. I'd offered them in the past, in the case of Janet. If I take God out of the picture, and Marcy had faith, so I probably shouldn't take God out of the picture, but if I take God out of the picture, then it is hard for me to understand why Marcy recognized my depression when others, including my family, didn't. It's also honest to wonder why she would have cared either way. Again, there was nothing in it for her. Months later, she would tell me that I had already married Cheryl, and when the time came, I'd know she was right. I was fumbling with my locker one afternoon, lost in thoughts, trying to figure out how to deal with things. As I've related parts of this backstory before, it involves what I call too much knowledge that bordered on a suprasensory perception. That's not important to this story. 
Marcy shut my locker and told me that I was going to Wendy's, going to a hamburger joint with her. I named the chain because it's important to me. Like, even the details are sacred. I wasn't hungry. I'd eaten lunch that day. Even depressed, I rarely miss meals. Plus, depression tends to make you less interested in satisfying hunger impulses. So I told Marcy I wasn't hungry and asked her if she needed something. A nice way to say, why are you bugging me? She told me that she didn't need anything, but I did. And whether I ate anything or not, we were going to Wendy's. Had I ever been in Marcy's car before? Eh, maybe. Perhaps going to a journalism conference that the school district was hosting? We'd never gone to lunch before. Even at school, snacking on chips or candy, we'd never engaged in what I sometimes call the sacrament of shared food and drink. This was new, and it came out of nowhere. I wasn't carrying cash for a second lunch, and I think she ended up paying for both of us. We ordered the small stuff, little burger and a chocolate shake, you know, frosty. And for a while we sat in silence. Again, only in retrospect do I have a sense of what Marcy must have been going through. I was avoiding the opportunity to speak to a relative stranger in the same manner. Fear was a big factor. Marcy did speak, nicely, but without pulling any punches. She wanted to know what was wrong. She didn't take any denials for an answer, and she seemed to know more than she really knew. Maybe that doesn't make sense. You know what? The young woman I eventually did approach probably could have described me the same way. I kind of knew more than I knew. I didn't have any answers. I only had questions. That had much to do with why I was feeling so out of sorts to begin with. Marcy didn't let it go. If she wasn't leaving Wendy's with my answers, then we were going to sit there until I shared my questions. I love Marcy dearly, of course, but I don't think I ever saw her being that smart again around me anyway. So I told her my questions. She helped me sift through what could logically be coincidence with what probably was too weird to blame on chance. There was no way to sort everything out, so I'm not going to say that Marcy helped me sort everything out. Weeks later, though, I did step out in faith as I was called to do, and I made a few enemies by crossing my click-filled high school. Old friends stopped listening. New friends were hard to come by. My girlfriend was about ready to hit the undo button on our relationship. No doubt, I was a disappointment to Marcy as well. Perhaps by trying to have an are-you-using-quaaludes conversation with someone without mentioning drugs at all, and then wondering why I only created anger and confusion. To be fair, as opposed to just creating anger. I believe that God gave me Marcy's intervention. Would I be dead without it? Well, that's a touch overdramatic. I'll bet you, though, that most anyone at the right age would know what I'm talking about. The world gets mighty small when you can't fit into a school situation to save your life. Marcy listened, giving me someone to talk to and somebody to talk with when I thought no one else would. She forgave my foolishness and probably chimed in with the occasional cut him some slack when less forgiving people made observations behind my back. She gave me hope when I didn't have much, and she pointed my attention toward a better future. Don't forget Cheryl, she told me on graduation night, when the whole high school experience just ends. You are going to marry Cheryl. I was a freshman in college when my girlfriend was a senior in high school. There was a year that had to be bridged. The Pollyanna Cowgirl Records Podcast. Podcast. So it's like someone saying I love you to you once a week. Tony Pucci specifically. Tony Pucci specifically. Hi, this is Tony Pucci of Pollyanna Cowgirl Records Podcast. I'd like to invite you to join me each week as I play one hour of pod-safe pop and rock music. You can find the show at PollyannaCowgirl.com or at the host podcast network site, simplysyndicated.com. Peace and love. I know what it feels like when God intervenes in my life. I know what it feels like when the Holy Spirit leads me to intervene in the lives of others. I've been on both sides. I don't expect to turn a corner and find a burning bush. I see no reason to anticipate my face being licked by a mystical tongue of fire. At that time in my life, at least, God looked like mercy. My reasons for believing this are much more powerful than a pragmatic mathematical formula telling me that it's probably not true could ever be. Where would I be without God? Well, if I forgot the Janet rules and tried to drink my troubles away at high school, 
lost Cheryl as a result, wasted a couple of years in college trying to recover what I thought was mine. Oh, I'd be lost. I'd be somewhere, but I'd be lost. As goes one Janet rule, so goes the other. There's no math to back that up, but it seems logical to me. I can see myself deciding that if God hadn't directed me to speak with the alleged Quaalude user in order to befriend her, then maybe it was just hormones running wildly wrong. Maybe I was looking for some action, despite being very happy with my girlfriend. Maybe the world is right when it says that men, or at least straight men, can never truly befriend women. It's enough to say for now, though, that I didn't go that route. Could I be happier than I am today? Well, who can actually answer that question from our fixed point on a linear graph? I'm much closer to happily ever after than I would be without following this course, a course that sometimes defies human reason and wisdom. I thank God for that. Those who know me best would keenly observe that I've left out the best examples, along with lots of little and seemingly insignificant examples. I'm okay with that. Between the lines and Marcy's story are perhaps my darkest days. Within months after saying goodbye to Janet, some great things happened that, I don't know, restored balance to the force, for want of a better expression. I believe that praying and listening to what God may have to say or show me has led to both louder and quieter answers, a full range of decibels of answers from the Holy Spirit. I do not presume that others would experience things in the same way that I have. I do presume, though, that without God... I would be in silence more about questions, including some that I can't find the words to ask. Thanks for bearing with me for this bearing of my soul. Away, then he had to go and say, Got to love the same way that I love you. Love like crazy. That was Chris Rice, our different drummer this week, and a song from his amusing album called Love Like Crazy. This album represented for him a transition point from Rocket Town Records, a contract he signed on his first major deal with the record label, uh, kind of. You know, known for Michael W. Smith as much as anything else, to a more independent label that allowed him to sing both contemporary Christian and secular songs and gave him the ability to get some radio airplay, in particular for a track called Lemonade. For me, Chris Rice is the answer to a question, and it's a question that was posed on a couple of podcasts I enjoy, and I don't think they necessarily hurt each other, so this question has been coming at me from the world on a couple of different angles, and I agree with the point of view behind the question, and that's that Most contemporary Christian music is not very good, that it somehow either fails to be great as music or fails to be great as Christian, because there's that game that sort of, you know, you can't have two masters thing that Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount that tends to get these bands sort of all caught up. So you have this pursuit of relevance where it it sounds like heavy metal, but it isn't, and it's not supposed to be heavy metal. It's supposed to just sound like heavy metal. Well, I'm frankly perfectly comfortable with heavy metal music, I'm less comfortable with music that's trying to sound like something that it doesn't want to be. There's something not genuine about it. And in some ways, you see that throughout the contemporary Christian genre. The CTC music is often, you know, well, this is somebody who's going to sound like Celine Dion, or this is going to sound like rock and roll, or this is going to sound like Southern rock, or this is going to sound like folk rock. Because the most important thing in the eyes of those record labels and their management and probably the bands themselves is that their music be Christian music. Sometimes CTC fails on that front as well. You know, just like you, it's not hard to find a preacher who doesn't really understand what the Bible says and doesn't have the first clue what Jesus meant on, you know, the Sermon on the Mount. You can find musicians who have just as big or perhaps even a bigger problem. I certainly hold somebody who's been theologically trained at a higher standard of understanding the Bible than somebody who's 
basically, you know, a musician wants to sing some songs, wants to reach out to the kids. But despite the truth in some of those claims that there's really a lot wrong with contemporary Christian music, there are exceptions. At the end of this blog post or this uh, forum post that I put up years ago, I quoted some lyrics from Jars of Clay. Maybe Jars of Clay is a good example of a band that runs the gamut between some songs that I don't think really are all that good, some examples where I think that the either the musicianship's not what it should be or the lyrics aren't what they should be. But when those guys hit it out of the park, they certainly hit it out of the park. And the one that I referred to back then was a song called Faith Enough from the Who We Are Instead album, which might be my favorite album by Jars of Clay, certainly the most lyrically interesting album by them. And the quote, it's just enough to be strong in the broken places. It's an idea for me, theologically, that Jesus meets us where we're hurting, where we're broken, where we're suffering, where we're falling, where we're failing. And we just need to, we just need to have the courage to go there. It's hard to go to the place where the memories are the most powerfully strong, and in some cases powerfully negative. But Jesus will meet you there. And from Chris Rice's perspective, if you don't meet Jesus there, you'll know it. There'll be a hunger for something missing. There'll be a thirst. And the first song I ever heard by Chris Rice was from his second major label album called Thirsty. A friend of mine, this is sort of in the aftermath of 9-11, in fact, we're trying to offer encouragement, trying to find answers, trying to deal with some of the issues we were facing, shared this song with me. And it's one of those moments where I heard this song and it changed everything. Because maybe for the first time in my life, I was hearing from a contemporary Christian artist that I thought had the answer to all the questions of credibility, that it wasn't just a one note. It wasn't an either or. It wasn't a joke like some of it can be. It was real. It was sincere. And maybe that's easier in a singer-songwriter genre. Maybe it's easier when maybe the, the obvious comparison I'd make, at least to the one song I'd heard, would be something like James Taylor. You know, a man and his guitar is always going to have a little bit more flexibility in what he does than a, the lead singer and principal songwriter of a rock band trying to keep everybody together. Uh, as it were. But the lyrics to this song, Thirsty, by Chris Rice, are, I'm so thirsty, I can feel it running through the deepest corners of my soul. Deep desire? Can't describe this. Nameless urge that drives me somewhere, though I don't know where to go. Seems I've heard about a river from someone who's been, and they tell me once you reach it, oh, you'll never thirst again. So I have to find the river. Somehow my life depends on the river. Holy river. I'm so thirsty. Other waters I've been drinking, but they always leave me empty like before. Satisfaction, that's all I'm asking. Could I really be this thirsty if there weren't something more? Other I'll grant to anyone who's skeptical that on one level that is, you know, kind of the old cliche about the human heart having a God-sized hole in it, a hole that only God can fill. These are words that you'll hear in lots of writings, including people like G.K. Chesterton and C.S. Lewis. But boy, it rang true for me in those Chris Rice lyrics to that song. One of the first things I did when I lost my job in the record store was join a movie club. I was never allowed to participate in record clubs and movie clubs either by company policy or, frankly, really my own policy. It didn't make sense to take one of the principal competitors to the business model of a mall record store and invest yourself in that program that was performing a loss leader function for the record label and the, the movie label, but taking dollars directly out of you know my store, taking traffic out of my store. But when I was sort of unceremoniously dumped from that industry, uh, just do a hostile takeover bid where it just didn't work out that there was going to be a spot for me. And the reality that was beginning to be pretty clear, even in 1998, that this industry wasn't long for this world, that the model of uh, what became iTunes would certainly be a, a very staggering economic blow. I did. I said, well, you know what, if I'm not going to be part of that industry anymore, I'm going to sign up for a movie club. 
but I didn't immediately sign up for a record club in part because you know, being part of the record side of that business, the music side of that business, I had lots of music and more, more music than I could have listened to in just the first couple of years. So I took those couple of years and I listened to music. But when I heard this song thirsty by Chris Rice, I immediately went, joined a record club for the sole purpose of using every single one of the initial seven free CDs to buy Chris Rice's existing catalog. I basically joined a record club to buy the music of Chris Rice, and I have not regretted that even for one solitary moment. Frustrated brother, see how he's tried to light his own candle some other way. See now your sister, she's been robbed and lied to, still holds a candle without a Take your candle and go light your world. Don't mind if I do. So I'm going to play some clips of some Chris Rice songs. Conveniently, I don't think I have to worry too much about uh, the lyrics or being understood or quoting the lyrics because in that singer-songwriter genre, he's pretty easy to understand. And I'm going to cover kind of the, the range of his musical career. One of the things that I found really strongly encouraging about the music of Chris Rice was that he, at times, was offering an apologetic message to the church. I mean, if inappropriate conversations is preachy at all, it's preachy toward Christians who feel like they've got a happy social club, they don't need to do anything Jesus said. Chris Rice gave me some music and lyrics to that idea in a song called Me and Becky that came on his album, Run the Earth, Watch the Sky. We're so thankful for the blessings, but maybe we could lay them aside. Get a feeling we might be headed for the time of our lives So hop in and hold on tight Come on Becky, let's go for a ride If I'm driving too fast, then I apologize There's a world out there that'll be left behind For the souls that are born and it's yours and mine Looks like a reckless road and a sacrifice And I'm crazy scared it may cost our lives But then I remember Jesus died Around the same time, I did a little bit of work in prison ministry. Not a lot, perhaps not enough. We'll see how that goes over time. But one of the songs that I found directly relevant to that idea of going into a prison and you know, listening and caring about people and answering questions if they got them, but not being pushy if they don't, was a song from the Chris Rice CD, Smell the Color Nine, called The Face of Christ. After 16 years in a cold gray prison yard Somehow his heart is soft But keeping simple faith is hard He lays his Bible open on the table next to me And as I hear his humble prayer I feel his longing to be free someday How did I find myself in a better place? I can't look down on the frown on the other guy's face when I stoop down I'm going to try to make this a quick different drummer segment because I still have a little bit more to say about that online forum and my response to the question, where would I be without God? And the main thing I want to drive home today is that the answer to that question is personal. The last couple of tracks I want to share from Chris Rice are sort of dealing with that personal aspect. One is Smile, also from that Run the Earth, Watch the Sky CD, about the longing for heaven, the longing for something more. And the last one will also be a similar idea called The Final Move from the amusing album that I started this different drummer segment with. And this idea that as Christians, we need to have confidence that even if it feels like 
the ultimate relationship that our world revolves around is not yet come to full fruition, and that that won't happen either until death or until the second coming of Christ, that we need to have a great deal of confidence and take hope and solace from the idea that God, that love itself, has the final move. Where are you Because I just So if I offer a couple of quick pieces of advertisement here at the near the end of the show, one would be the music of Chris Rice is well worth listening to. Short Term Memories is a good greatest hits collection from that period. Past the Edges is one of my favorite of his studio albums. It includes the song Thirsty, but really you're not going to go wrong. And if you're a traditionalist, Peace Like a River is his hymns project, a fairly recent album released by him, or at least released around the same time I was writing letters to myself anyway. So very solid. The music of Chris Rice is what I would call the answer to the question, why isn't there any good, genuine, contemporary Christian music that gets both the message and the music exactly right? The other thing I would offer is that inappropriate conversations can be heard on Stitcher. Stitcher.com gives you the ability to listen to podcasts anywhere you go. But back to the original question. I was asked, where would you be without God? And I took the question that personally. It wasn't a hypothetical in my mind of, can you cover the concepts of God and his existence and so forth and so on? But I did try to answer the question both ways. This one may seem like a pointlessly long and meandering answer. I don't think it is. First, I did previously answer the question by referring to St. Anselm and his concept of necessary being. I replied by stating that God's existence is necessary for my existence. So if God doesn't exist, or if he didn't exist, I wouldn't either. But I also would not be aware of my non-existence. Second, with that quick reply that I'd put online back then, I conceded that that kind of answer was a bit too good at shutting down conversation. It's a negating answer in that respect. So I offered to carefully and prayerfully considered what it would mean to conceive of a hypothetical world where I was still here, still experiencing everything that I remember happening to me, that my life wasn't changed for any other reason than how would it be different without God? What is the end result to that exercise? Well, you know, I've, I've already heard from some people back then in response to the forum that there's other explanations for why people stepped up and stepped in and tried to help people and try to stand up for them. Maybe it's just in our nature to interact with people. Humans are social. Was it just curiosity killing a few cats? Are there better answers than God? The fact is that even in that long series of online forum posts and in this long episode of Inappropriate Conversations, I was driven by a need for brevity and, ironically, a desire for some privacy. I left out points that I'm certain take coincidence right out of the picture in terms of God's role in these relationships. There are obviously human reasons for these types of interactions, but what interests me is where the idea came from in the first place. 
If you argue that something came from a depth of subconscious so great that it is impossible to identify it as self, maybe an attempt to supplant faith with intuition or confuse the two, then I'd have to say that someone in that state is just as likely to be hearing from God and not crediting him as being guilty of giving a deity credit for something that solely lies deep within human nature. I believe the idea for these interactions that I've shared came from God. So the bottom line, I was asked where I would be without God, and I countered with a heartfelt question, where would I be without Janet and Mercy? The answer is exactly the same, because my faith tells me that God acted through Janet and Marcy, and I hope he acted through me as well. Let it be so, which is just another way of saying amen. Thanks for listening.